it's very likely that our generation is leading to the most drastic change to the environment ever back in history. Most deforestation or changes into the forest that I see are being done because people are desperate or hungry. Once you've got information, that's very, very powerful because you can take the small resources you have and put them into those areas that will have absolutely the most impact. Welcome back to Unearthed, mysteries from an unseen world from the Royal Botanic Gardens queue. I'm James Wong, and across this series, we've heard how plants and fungi underpin our lifestyles, progress, and well-being in a myriad of ways. For our last episode, I'm taking on a big one. The changes we make today, this year, next year, are going to be felt in the next thousands of years. We really have a huge responsibility to do the right actions today. Deforestation might be one of the biggest problems facing our world today. Forest fires have dogged international news headlines in the last year, and the majority of this destruction is created by human activity. It's a complex issue, with everyone from major world governments to tiny local villages participating in how it happens and how it evolves. There are strict international rules around logging and transporting wood and wood products in order to protect species, biodiversity and even the fate of entire ecosystems. There are groups calling for deliberate environmental damage to be declared an international crime and at the same time others who feel that this law would risk punishing some of the world's poorest communities who rely upon forests to meet their basic needs. As always, a complex issue. But while the public debate rages on, an international underground network of criminal traders continues to find profit at the expense of the planet. Groups are operating in ingenious ways to illegally move wood and wood products around the world to sell as furniture, for fuel, for industry, building materials and more. We heard from Carly Cowell on CITES earlier in the series. CITES is an international convention of countries. It's the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. It was started or established in 1975, so it's been going for roughly 45 years. It's one of the oldest conservation conventions where like-minded individuals came together and recognized that commercial trade is actually endangering the survival of certain species in the wild. In this episode, I'm asking for Q's help to unpack the ways in which our disappearing forests are a problem for us all to tackle. We'll need to trace these issues back to why and how they're taking place. But first, we start at the end we all know, our own homes. It's possible that right now you're harboring an illegal product without even knowing it. But how do you catch the criminal? The answer lies in a grain of wood. So far in this series, I've found out about some of the unexpected and unusual projects that land on the desks of Q staff, and the next one is no exception. Picture a shipment coming off the docks on a rainy night. A crate of contraband is seized, and officials whisk away the precious cargo for analysis. The contents might cause the businesses involved to make or lose millions of pounds. It might seem like a crate of fine guitars, regular building materials, or fancy furniture, but it's what it's made of that really matters. So it's off to Q for investigation. Q 
Hughes Wood Anatomy Unit has the task of working with UK Border Force, the UK authority on timber traders and anyone shifting CITES listed items. It's their job to investigate and identify everything from antiques to archaeological finds, as well as suspect import and exports. And there's a lot riding on their decisions. It's a typical human trait that human beings find something that is exploitable and then they overdo it. And before you know it, there's none left or so little left. And then, of course, uh, the rules of economics mean that the rarer something gets, the more expensive it becomes and the more in demand it becomes. That's Dr Peter Gasson. He heads up the Wood Anatomy Department at Kew. I wanted to find out why there are such strict international rules for what wood we can bring in and out of the country and why they're there in the first place. I'm a research leader in wood and timber at Kew, although I really consider myself to be a botanist and a general natural historian. I like to think I know my plants if I'm walking around the palm house or any of the gardens, but to be able to identify plants from these tiny fragments just requires such specific knowledge. And that's sort of given you a remit from everything, from what I understand from uh, identifying smuggled products to examining the coffin of an Egyptian mummy. So it's not just your average lab, is it? I mean, it's a bit of a tall order uh, trying to identify fragments of plant material from just about anything from anywhere. You mentioned an Egyptian mummy. I'm quite pleased about this. There was a very tiny fragment of wood that was sent to me from inside a... uh, sarcophagus and uh, it was so small all I could do was just warm it up in a in some warm water and put put it on a slide from that I managed to identify it as cedrus wood cedar wood now that's not as amazing as it sounds because there are is a single character in the tracheids of that wood that will nail that species or that genus and I could find that in that tiny scrap It's not usually quite so easy and straightforward as that. And of course, I knew that the piece of wood came from Egypt in the first place. So that was a help as well. It's a whole level of attention to detail that I'm just not capable of. So I I wish my brain could work that way. Uh, When you're working for the UK Border Force, what kind of things are you looking for? Well, generally, they will have stopped something that's coming into this country. In the past, it's been quite a lot of wooden blinds which are made of a range of different woods and sometimes ramen is in the blind and that is on CITES Appendix 2. You know, rosewoods are an example uh, where fairly recently all 250-odd species were put on CITES Appendix 2. One of them, Brazilian rosewood, is on CITES 1. Aquilaria agarwood, which I believe Carly has spoken to you about, all the species in that genus are um, on CITES, so it doesn't matter which one it is. So long as I can get as far as Aquilaria, the genus, that will do. Why do you think so much wood is being circulated illegally? Certainly when you think of, about things that are on CITES and also all the timbers that are covered by EU timber regulations, if you've got cat skins or elephant tusks or rhino horn or pangolin scales, they're all readily recognised as what they are. But with timber, lots of different timbers look very similar to each other. You really need some expertise to tell them apart. If you look at a UNODC report, that's the United Nations Office for Drugs and Crime, 
back in 2016, I think that was, they worked out the commercial value of illegally wildlife traded items that have been confiscated. 41% is wood. Elephants are only 18% and big cats 2%. If you're looking at tropical things like the rosewoods, often in a hectare of tropical forest, you'll have 200 woody species that are are tree-sized, but you might only have 10 individuals of a particularly valuable timber. So if you take those out, you've pretty well finished off that species in that particular area. So there are lots of issues. It's not it's not just deforestation, it's over-exploitation, it's mixing things up. You know, you're playing with fire, removing species from a natural forest. People always talk about reforestation. What was there before the palm oil plantation was put there? Probably a pristine rainforest. This is why we're building up this new program called World Forest ID. And if you if you want to, you can look at the uh, website that we're creating from that. Because ultimately, we would like to be able to say, well, this particular tree from this country, you're saying it comes from a concession in such and such a spot, but actually it comes from a national park, which is 20 miles away. And being able to have that data just gives you that almost 100% verification. I think I'm possibly exaggerating the, the accuracy, but ultimately that's what we want to be able to do. In 2010, a Scottish lawyer called Polly Higgins walked away from her hard-fought place at the bar. Her goal? to devote her time to changing the law on a global scale. It was then that she turned her attention to challenging CEOs and directors of some of the world's most powerful companies. Without a voice of its own, Polly's goal was simple, to speak for nature and to make the loss, damage or destruction of ecosystems an enforceable UN-recognized law. How do we ensure the responsibility to protect not just life, but all life. And this is where I say there is missing criminal law. Polly didn't invent the concept of ecocide. That term might have been used since the 70s, but the concept of a law that protects the natural world from human harm had been debated for a long time. Whether it's the impact of land, sea or river systems, the life within it, our climate and the communities that depend closely on their habitat, ecocide law has been proposed to create an international, legally binding duty of care towards the earth. Polly had been diagnosed with terminal cancer and with the days left to her, she vowed to do everything she could to leave a legacy that she felt passionate about. Polly sadly passed away in April 2019, aged just 50. But the work continues. But the question of whether to define ecocide in law divides scientists, lawyers, leaders and businesses around the world. I spoke to Q's Director of Science, Dr. Alex Antonelli, to get his take. I lead the work of about 500 scientists trying to understand and protect biodiversity. Ecocide is something that sounds quite similar to genocide, which everyone unfortunately knows. And it's also something that everyone understands is totally unacceptable. The whole idea behind this really is that no single politician 
would be able to destroy a whole environment, a whole ecosystem, just because uh, she or he thinks that the best thing to do in terms of economic growth or some other purposes. So the idea is to create some laws that would hinder uh, individuals to really make long-lasting damage to ecosystems, which I think are an asset for the whole planet and humanity. So that there are international laws in place to protect nature, but not of this type. No, that's right. So each country have their national legislation for protecting species and protecting their ecosystems. But we also know that there's a, a huge variation among different countries in terms of how that law is formed and perhaps even more importantly, how it's implemented. So the, the idea of ecocide is really something that would go beyond national legislation so that we can collectively safeguard the future of some major ecosystems, such as the Amazon rainforest, uh, which in my opinion is something that is absolutely vital for the future of our planet and of our own species. So it's, it's really thinking about these natural spaces as a common good for the whole of humanity rather than something that is just the, of benefit and relevance to the people in individual countries. Exactly. So the story goes back to the Convention on Biological Diversity, which was ratified in Rio, which is in my country, Brazil, where I was born and grew up. And the idea that nations will be in charge of their own species sounded very good, but it also puts a huge responsibility on each country doing their homework, basically, in protecting those species. But the thing is that species don't know any borders. And in particular, we know that by destroying an ecosystem in one country, if the same ecosystem occurs across the border, that will affect, of course, that country's uh, ecosystems as well. Almost all ecosystems we know about in big biomes, such as rainforests and savannas, they go across several countries. So it's really important to think up about biodiversity and nature as a holistic thing which doesn't know any borders and has to be managed uh, in a collective way. So in terms of deforestation, for example, what are the consequences for the world? You mentioned consequences and that we may not see these for a while, but what are they? There are many consequences, and I don't think we can imagine that our chances of survival on the planet are going to be the same if we cut down our forest in the way we've been doing in the past. Since the Convention on Biological Diversity that I mentioned in 92, we've actually lost about 25% of all tropical forests on the planet. And the consequences of this are, are manifold. The first thing is that it drastically affects climate. So for instance, in the Amazon in South America, by cutting down large chunks of the forest, that has a direct effect on the precipitation or rainfall patterns across the continent. And there are tens of millions of people who are dependent on the rain and the water coming from those forests for drinking, really, and for agriculture as well. So th there's a, a regional, a continental effect. But even large ecosystems such as Amazon, but others, they have a global effect. So by you know, disrupting that ecosystem, you will see effects in terms of uh, extreme events of weather. You'll see increased dryness, global warming, because there's a lot of greenhouse gases being emitted as well through deforestation. So there's a whole impact on the climate. But not, that's not only about climate, because we also have millions of people who are directly or indirectly dependent on natural assets from the forests. Of course, we know the indigenous communities living in those forests, but also people who are 
buying products, selling furniture, and indirectly really dependent on those resources being always available and renewable. So there are economic effects, there are climatic effects, social effects of both of those people who have to be displaced. Uh, we've seen that a lot in terms of uh, indigenous communities having to be moved in order to make place for agriculture. And of course, there's an ethical aspect. We know that rainforests, for instance, have been around for millions of years. Uh, we're sharing this planet with at least 8 million other species who have been here, you know, evolving for tens of millions of years. And what right do we actually have to destroy them and make an effect that extends far beyond the limits of our own species? So like you, uh, my, my origins are in a developing country, which has, has a, a large problem with deforestation in Malaysia. And we're often, we find that the economy and the environment are pitched as opposites. So the environment's all well and good, but we need to eat today. And, you know, we, we have some of the, the world's poorest uh, populations, but that doesn't necessarily have to be a, a contrasting thing. You can, the environment provides us with services that benefit people. Of course. And it's, it's really unfortunate that in the 90s, there was a lot of discussion, not least from the World Bank, some really prominent people proposing that the first priority for humanity is to safeguard economic growth. So we first need to sort it out before we can start worrying about the environment. That, that's nonsense, really, because we know now that what we need is really green growth and green economies. We are seeing changes that no people have ever seen before. So it's very likely that our generation is leading to the most drastic change to the environment than ever back in history. And probably we'll never see that in the future either, because there won't be so much left if we continue in the way we are. So within our generation, there are mathematical models suggesting, for instance, the conversion of a whole ecosystem such as the Amazon into something quite different, a savanna or a desert. And that will be within our lifetime. We can't just think about the next election or the end of the century because there, is, there should be life after that. Thanks for listening to Unearthed. I'll be back again in just a minute. But first, here's a message from our supporter, Kim Kutral. As a charity, the Royal Botanic Gardens Q is facing a severe funding crisis right now. The impact of coronavirus has created a financial shortfall of 15 million pounds. This money is vital for the upkeep of these beautiful botanic gardens and crucial to continuing its global conservation work. Plants and fungi hold many of the answers to the world's biggest challenges, such as climate change, food security, and biodiversity loss. And Q needs to play a role in furthering the science and identifying desperately needed solutions. If there's one positive thing that could come out of this pandemic, it will be to encourage each and every one of us to look afresh and with urgency at these global challenges. If you are enjoying this podcast and feel inspired by the work that Q does, please go to Q.org to donate today to help not only protect Q, but also preserve the future of our planet. I found it really quite moving to talk to Alex and hear the facts about the heavy responsibility that lies in the hands of us all now. But it's good to hear that there are some cracks of light to be found in what science can tell us, and what we've learned, as well as hearing how we can lobby to protect our ecosystems on an individual level. 
I was intrigued about Alex's point about how technology is making it easier for us to survey ecosystem change in the present day. So my next guests live and breathe this sort of tech and spend their time gathering and interpreting this data. Fire started by humans is the leading global cause of deforestation. In Madagascar, communities use slash and burn techniques to clear forests for paddy fields and pasture, as well as logging for timber and charcoal. In fact, there's such massive demand on the island's forest that 75% of the island's 17.5 million people actually rely on it for their existence. Madagascar is known for its unique biodiversity. As the fourth largest island in the world, it's host to a huge number of species that simply can't be found anywhere else on the planet. But a staggering 80% of its original forest has been lost, and 75% of that has been in the last 50 years alone. Some of Kew's UK scientists work regularly out of a base in Madagascar, alongside local staff to monitor and contain forest loss. With the help of the latest drone-mounted cameras, some really sophisticated modelling can help inform current, historical and future forest loss. I wanted to find out more about how this island presents as a microcosm of issues faced around the world. I'm Dr Justin Mote, Senior Research Analysis. I work in the Spatial Analysis Department, dealing with basically all things to do with where things are. So where plants are, how they get there, uh, also using large amounts of the latest technology, remote sensing, to drones and satellite imagery to work out what's happening to the planet and the health of the planet and where all the plants are on the planet. I'm Jenny Williams. I'm a spatial scientist at Kew. And my job, because that sounds a little bit confusing, is really anything spatial. So anything with a coordinate or anything that can be put onto Google Maps or Google Earth, that's the kind of work that I do. So a lot of it is in relation to either satellite imagery or maps. And a lot of the work I'm doing personally at the moment is in Madagascar. My work, looking at things from space or in a broad perspective, can look at lots of different parts of the world. And there are lots of areas of the world that are very biodiverse. Once you've got information, that's very, very powerful because you can take the small resources you have and put them into those areas that will have absolutely the most impact. What we often do is understand the present distribution. And then by looking at the distribution we have at the moment, we can work out very simply on the preference of the plant. If you imagine a plant in your garden, which uh, doesn't like too much frost or something like that, or needs a, a sandy soil or a free draining soil, we can then start modeling that species across the planet to see where else it might occur. And then we can actually start modeling that into the future under climate change or deforestation to see what might change in the future. Most of the work that I've been doing recently, it's mostly people on the ground, they really want to know what's there and they don't know. Obviously, I've been working in Madagascar, so there's a limit to the ability to use computers and download satellite imagery and with internet network and things like that as well. But they just don't know what their forest looks like and things are changing fast. So to start with, it's just a basic base map of what their forest actually looks like, the areas that they walk in. They can see their villages, they can see their paddy fields, they can see the forest that they walk through to get to the next village, they can see areas. And then what we've been showing them in some of the imagery is that we can see where these illegal little forest cuts have been going through as well. So other villages might not know or other communities might not know that 
a community has decided to take out a little patch of the forest. And then when we kind of essentially zoom out of our drone imagery to to look at the whole forest, it looks like a little bit of a Swiss cheese because everybody's gone in, taken a little patch of forest, but left enough forest on the outside that it still looks like a healthy, intact forest, but actually isn't anymore. Um, and this is the kind of information that we can pull from. For example, when we were in Ankara Fansica earlier this year, now our, our trip was cut slightly short due to COVID-19 and we had to get back before they shut the borders. But we did manage to get quite a lot of drone imagery whilst we were there. And we had a look at three very distinct areas. So the first area that I've mentioned is where they had the charcoal burning of the trees and they had lots of kilns in the forest and the, the forest was kind of largely taken out. The forest in general there wasn't very well protected because a lot of the communities were going in and taking and, and doing some of the charcoal burning. So our suggestion for that was like maybe if you could have like more rangers or or people going through having a presence and understanding what's going on with these like kilns and those kind of things and working out is it legal. And whilst we were doing our droning in a couple of other areas, we discovered one area that had been really intensely burnt. And because this area is burnt quite badly last year, obviously we heard a lot about the Australian fires, but Madagascar had a lot of its own fires as well. I looked over onto a plateau and I saw a big hole in the forest. And I was like, how's that happened? So my suggestion for this area was it would be a fantastic area for restoration because it's naturally protected. Um, that's a big thing in Madagascar. If you're doing any work, you need to have some guards or some kind of some local community garden area because you don't want things to get taken out or destroyed afterwards. So it being close enough to a community that could be protected, I was like, this is a fantastic area for restoration. And then we can research and learn from that how things would either restore naturally or with a bit of help. However, we also had a, uh, another area that we were looking at, which was essentially incinerated. The two, it was a large area, it was two different substrates, and the trees were completely burnt down. And in that area, I looked at it, and from my personal opinion, I didn't think it would be good for that same kind of restoration because it was too far away for anyone to be able to protect the area. It had a path going through it and it had been so severely burnt. So for that area, I've suggested that as I don't think it would be beneficial to actually do formal restoration, that we actually research it as natural regeneration. Have a look at naturally how the, the forest is going to come back from that. If it can, what species will come back? And just in four or five months, it looks like the forest wants to come back. So we research it, see how natural regeneration happens in these areas. I wanted to ask you about the term ecocide. It's one that we hear a lot nowadays. What's your opinion on the term ecocide? I would be very careful of using that word. Most deforestation or changes into the forest that I see are being done because people are desperate, poor, hungry. And it may be also being done by us. You know, uh, we demand products from around the world, and those products often come from land that was once forest and has been changed. So I find the word quite difficult. But as I say, often the areas we work in is because there's a big demand, and that demand is coming from us. It's not really coming from anyone else. We need to work with local people that understand these landscapes, and some of them have been living in them for thousands and thousands of years uh, as communities, and they have a greater understanding of the landscape than we, we would ever have. That these people are working in those landscapes, they have a much better understanding of the landscape than we will ever have. But also they're, they're the people that are going to sort of implement any changes that we, we perceive might be quite useful. So in some areas we may be working with local communities that are using quite large areas of the landscape for their cattle. 
and by suggesting some relatively small changes, maybe moving their cattle from different areas or fencing off some small areas, which allows seed banks to build up, we can make some very small changes in the landscape, which allows species and diversity to be increased, but also will help these people with their cattle as well, so that they have landscapes which they can use to feed their cattle through the air and don't have so many famine years. Even for me as a botanist, today has been more eye-opening than I was expecting. It's caused me to, to challenge some of my most preconceived beliefs and think more closely about how we can work together to preserve the natural world. Across this series, you and I have heard the most extraordinary stories and met remarkable individuals. From criminal cases to the contents of our bathroom cabinets, the science of plants and fungi is driving our greatest advancements. I've heard how plants can bring us miracle medicines the world over. We've learned how fungi can make everyday life safer, more convenient, and more productive. Their multifaceted worlds hold so many more mysteries, we're at a point where every discovery just seems to unearth even more questions. And on a more bittersweet note, we also don't know what we stand to lose. As someone whose life's work is hand-in-hand hand with nature and the environment, even I need a moment to reflect on, on just the magnitude of the evidence and, and the struggle we face. Today I've heard how intricately our world is connected to its environment. The realization that it's changing more quickly than ever is sobering. The scientists and staff I've met may not all agree that ecocide is a helpful law, but it definitely opens up a vital debate. I'm not even sure which side of it I stand on. There is one thing they all agree on though. Time is running out for us, but we still have a chance to act. Biodiversity loss presents a huge challenge to all of our futures, and we all have a role to play in responding to that. In a field known for its dispassionate, measured language and objective analysis, when scientists who really know their stuff start talking this passionately, you know there is an incredibly urgent issue. But then, we've been given this message loud and clear by nature already, by the forest on fire in places like Brazil, Madagascar and Australia, by the plants and fungi that go extinct before we even know what powerful secrets they might hold for food, medicine and industry, by the food and water sources that are disappearing as lush forests are converted to desert, by the animals, birds and insects that are wiped out before we can discover them, by our changing climate and the natural consequences. There has never been so much at stake in the history of our species. But there's also never been a generation with the tools that we now have to make a difference. To me, it's so exciting to know the power that we have to change our world for the better, starting with the plant geeks at Kew. Thanks for listening to Unearthed, Mysteries from an Unseen World from the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. I'm James Wong, and I hope you've enjoyed exploring some of these secrets and little-known avenues with me. And I'd like to sincerely thank all the incredible scientists and staff at Kew who made time to talk to me. If you'd like to find out more, you can explore the website q.org.